All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. That is one of my favorite songs. I love the deep, rich theology in that, that Christ is the risen Lamb. Amen? He's the perfect, spotless righteousness, and He's imparted that righteousness to us and taken our sinful, wicked sins in, in return. He is the great, unchangeable I Am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the I Am, the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. That is a God that we have the privilege of serving, and He is worthy of our praise. All right, like I said, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Um, Not sure if we'll have the verses up on the screen, but if not, that's okay, because uh, I fear that sometimes we can become dependent on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, take out your Bibles, because it's good to get into our Bibles. Uh, Again, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. We're looking at this letter that Paul wrote to this church at Corinth, this church that had all kinds of struggles, all kinds of problems, all kinds of sin. They were a real church who were dealing with real things. And here Paul is giving them some real correction, some real rebuke. And while he's been doing that all throughout um, chapters 1 through 4, he touches on um, their, their dependence on wisdom and their desire for knowledge, for knowing things, for uh, philosophy, and he rebukes them for that somewhat subtly. And he focuses on their division and how they have a divisive attitude among them. Really, in these last chapters and going forward, he, he hammers down. Um, he turns up the heat a little bit. And I want to start by looking at uh, chapter 4, the last few verses in chapter 4, starting in verse 18. I think that's where... Uh, Paul really kind of turns it up. He says, Now some of you have become arrogant, puffed up, as though I were not coming to you. You guys are acting like I'm not going to come, and you're, you're getting all arrogant. He says in verse 19, But I will come to you soon. Um, I, I can't help but read that phrase and, and not hear the voice of Liam Neeson saying, But I will come to you, and I will find you. Um, and if you don't, get that reference, it's because you're a better Christian than I am, and you don't watch the kind of movies that I do. But Paul is, again, he's, he's turning up the heat, and he's saying, um, things are getting real, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about it. I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness. So he's saying, I'm going to come to you. We're going to have this discussion. We're going to talk out these things, all these issues that I'm bringing up that you have in your church. And are you going to receive that humbly and gently? Or am I going to have to put on the boxing gloves? And he really is kind of putting on the boxing gloves from this point forward. And we got into chapter 5 over the last couple of weeks, and we looked at how he rebukes this man who was caught in a sin. He had taken his father's wife as his own. And he rebukes him, not only personally, but he says, you need to get out of the church. Um, He rebukes the church themselves for not stepping in, not doing something to correct the issue, for putting up with his sin, even being arrogant about it. And especially the the leaders within the church would have felt that rebuke. Um, Read with me just the next couple of verses in chapter 5. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant. Again, puffed up, 
and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll get into our our text in chapter 6. God, we thank you once again for your holy inspired word that you have delivered it to us and preserved it for us. We pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would convict us from it, that you would guide and lead us and help us to become more like you, that we would grow up into our head who is Christ. God, help us to have a better understanding of what it is that that you said to this Corinthian church through your Apostle Paul, what it is that you would have for us today and how we can take and apply these truths to our life. God, help us to be soft and humble, not to be proud. Um, Help us to learn the lessons that you have, um, that you directed Paul to teach to the Corinthian church so that we don't have to go through those struggles. We don't have to go through what they went through. God, help us to be a church that represents you well. And God, teach us and, and lead us as we look at your word. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just carrying on right after this harsh rebuke of this man, kicking him out of the church and of the church and leadership as well. And we're going to be in the first eight verses of the chapter. I'm going to go ahead and read those to us. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So hopefully you can see that throughout this passage, there's a a progression of sorts that's going on in, in Paul's mind. How he is not super thrilled with this church, right? This local church at Corinth, and he's confronting them. And obviously he's not thrilled about the fact that they have disputes and disagreements among themselves. But that's something that goes on in in every church. That's something that's unavoidable because we're all humans. We have interactions with other humans and we're going to have disputes and disagreements at some point. But these Christians at the Corinthian church, they were taking these disputes and and they were taking each other to law. That's, That's worse than just having disputes, right? They were going to the law about it. They were trying to get their matters settled in a court of law. Even worse than that, these are believers going to law, going to court against other believers. Paul certainly isn't okay with that. But to make matters even worse, these believers are taking their disputes before a court of law against other believers and before non-believers. And so there's a a progression of, of Paul saying, this isn't okay, this isn't okay, this is even worse, this is just scandalous, this is unconscionable what you are doing. I can't believe that you are going to law against your brothers and even before unbelievers. And so Paul is quite clear about the fact that believers should not be suing one another. 
uh, that believers shouldn't be taking each other to court. And I want to look at two broad points, two broad reasons that he gives for why this shouldn't be the case. The first one, we'll spend most of our time looking at the first reason, is that it goes against God's design. For Christians to go to court against other Christians, it, it goes against God's design. It goes against reason. It goes against the order that he has set up for us. And then secondly, is that it hurts the church. It's harmful to the body of Christ, to the bride of Christ. So looking at that first reason, that it goes against God's design. In the first verse, he says, dare any of you go to court against one another? Um, actually, I think that's in the, the King James and New King James where he starts off and he says, dare you go to court against one another? No matter what translation you're using, um, it's translated using that word dare. But the, the King James and New King James starts off that, that verse as a Greek does with that, that word saying, dare you go to court against one another? Now, he's not speaking of their boldness in going to court against one another, but rather he's speaking of their ignorance in going to court against one another. He's speaking of the foolishness to take one another to court, even of their blatant disobedience to the design that God had set up for the church and how they're to function. And Paul says, do you actually dare to go to church? <laughs> Not to go to church. Do you dare to go to law against those who are in the church? It's good to go to church. Um, you should dare to go to church. But we should not dare, we should not be so ignorant or foolish as to take one another to court, is what Paul's saying. Um, he has a tendency to do that, doesn't he? He's, he? He speaks pretty plainly. If he wants to say something, he doesn't mince his words. I love in Galatians when he does this, when he's speaking to the Galatians just plainly. He says, are you so foolish? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Do you dare to, having started by the Spirit, try to continue in the flesh? He just tells them, you guys are a bunch of ignorant fools. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying, how dare you guys? That is, that's foolish. That's stupid to take one another to court and to do so among unbelievers. Um, and I, I should point out that word unrighteous um, in the, the NASB, that you go to law, you dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. He's not speaking to the fact that these are some kind of crooked judges, that this law court is unjust or that they, um, they're, they're paid off in some sense, but it's actually speaking of the fact that they are unjust. They are unjustified. They are not in Christ. They are unbelievers in the one true God, Yahweh, and his Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's really, it should be plain and obvious to us that um, or at least it's plain and obvious to Paul, and he wants it to be plain and obvious to the Corinthians and to us, that it would be much better for them to settle this in the church rather than going before unbelievers. He says, you guys have this, this nice, big, thick, juicy steak right here, and instead you're choosing this hot dog on the side, right? Rather than the steak. And maybe steak isn't your thing, but whatever your favorite food is, um, as opposed to your, your least favorite food, why are you choosing this uh, unhealthy meal that you don't even like, as opposed to this more preferable thing that, that is much better for you? Why are you going before these unbelievers when I have given you this, this institution, this organism, which is the church, for the very purpose of doing that? And in doing so, you are submitting yourselves to these unbelievers. And 
we might look at that and we might say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Uh, a believer versus an unbeliever. What if the, the unbeliever was in, in the church? Is it just uh, an issue of locale that, that Paul has because it needs to take place in this church building? Um, remember, the, the church is in a building. The church is the people that are in Christ. And those who are outside of Christ are operating under a completely different set of, of presuppositions. They don't have the understanding that a believer has that God is the one who is in control, that God is the one who sets the rules and the standards. And they're operating under a completely arbitrary set of rules. What is right for one judge might be wrong for another judge. They don't have a consistent objective standard that they can point to and say, this is good, this is right, this is just, as opposed to what is evil or wrong or unrighteous. That is, it's ever-changing, and it could be different for each judge because they are not filled with the Holy Spirit. They are not being guided and directed by the infallible Word of God. They are being guided and directed by their own understanding of whatever law they submit themselves to. And Paul is saying, that's not okay. You need to submit yourselves rather than to this unbelieving world to the, the system that I have set up in place for you. Once again, um, suppose that you're looking for somebody to do some, some yard work for you, to, to mow your lawn would you go to sweet little innocent three-year-old Ada? Or would you go to a responsible, respectful, strapping young man like Walker and say, I have this job for you. Here's 20 bucks. Will you help me out? Again, it's, it's ridiculously foolish, right? It should be a no-brainer. Um, Ada is sweet. She is the sweetest ever, but you don't want her to mow your lawn because she's not going to do a good job, right? Um, in the same respect, if you're looking for somebody to do some, some delicate streamstress work for you, you're not going to ask me because I went to maybe a third of my home tech classes in junior high um, and kind of stayed awake for some of them. Um, you'd be much more likely to go to somebody who, like Joe, who definitely knows her way around a needle and thread, right? Um, it should be blatantly obvious that these Christians shouldn't be outsourcing to unbelievers what they should be handling in-house themselves. And Paul has two different illustrations to kind of bring this to light and to, to pull us out and to help us realize the foolishness of going before unbelievers against our own brethren. Um, and it could be easy for us to get bogged down in these illustrations because they are they're interesting and there's some um, some stuff in there that is fun to dig into. I spent way too much time this week digging into it, and you can do that next week. Um, we're going to glance at it, but we really want to focus on Paul's point here. So two illustrations we find in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2 he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Well, that's interesting. The saints will judge the world. That, that sounds kind of nice. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Um, what does that mean, though? Looking at Second uh, Timothy, I'll read to you Second Timothy two eleven and twelve, and Paul writes to Timothy saying, "It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him." Well, that sounds nice, right? Um, what about this? Read with me in in Revelation two, as um, as John is writing to the church at Thyatira, and he says, "He who overcomes." And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron. 
as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So those are the, the words of Jesus writing to Thyatira, um, saying that if you, uh, if you overcome, to them he's saying, if you overcome, then you shall rule with a rod of iron over the nations. Now, I think it seems to be that this is taking place during Christ's millennial reign on earth and that we will likely be included in that reign. Um, similar to what we read in First Thessalonians 3 at the end of the chapter, that when Jesus comes, he's going to come with all of his saints and they're going to, to reign. And so that's, that's kind of exciting. Um, the, the second illustration in verse 3 says, do you not know that we will judge angels? Again, interesting. What does that mean that we will judge angels? Do you not know we will judge angels? Uh, once again, you kind of see that, that Paul is being a little heavy-handed with these guys now, right? He's already said, how dare you go to law against your brother before unbelievers? He said, do you not know? Don't you know? Don't you understand that you're going to judge the, the unbelievers? And then here, do you not know that you will judge the angels? And in fact, six times in this chapter alone, he uses this phrase, do you not know? Again, saying, come on guys, get with it. Stop being so ignorant. Stop being so foolish. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Um, we're not quite sure what that means. There's some disagreement about what it means to judge angels. The word here for judge is the same word that he used back in chapter 5 at the end, verses 12 and 13, where he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside the church? God judges. And it could be understood in a couple of different ways. It could be understood to judge judiciously, um, to decide somebody's fate as a judge does in our modern context of you know, a, a judicial system, what a judge does. Or it could be understood as, as ruling over, to govern, to oversee. Um, both understandings fit within that, that word, to judge. And also, we know that angels have a, a couple of different understandings as well, right? We have holy angels, um, what we would typically refer to as an angel. But there are also fallen angels, uh, sinful angels who have rebelled against God, demons, right? And so one understanding would be that we are, in one respect, going to rule or reign or govern over the holy angels because holy angels have no need for, for being judged. They haven't done anything wrong to uh, be taken to court for, right? Using our, our modern example. Um, so we could be, it could be talking about our future rule and governing over the holy angels. We know that Jesus, from Hebrews 2, he for a little while became lower than the angels. We positionally are lower than the angels. Angels um, on a, a hierarchical scale are above us, but we will be made like him, and we will be over them in some regard in the future, in eternity. Or this could be speaking of judgment in the judicial sense of the fallen angels, of unholy demons. Um, read with me, or I'll read to you rather, from Revelation 3.21. It says that he who overcomes, again, we see that term, that phrase, overcomes, um, 
before back in Second Timothy, it talked about enduring. In uh, Revelation 2 and here in Revelation 3, it talks about overcoming. It's kind of interesting how closely related this, this ruling in eternity is to the, the perseverance of the saints. Um, but anyway, it says that he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so, again, it's kind of ambiguous. We don't know for sure which position to take, but those are the two main positions um, in, in any regard. The point that Paul is trying to make is that if we are going to judge and rule in some respect in the future, then we should be confident to, to handle matters ourselves here and now. So in verse 2, he says, Do you not know that saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smaller law courts? And then in three, do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If you can do this, then surely you can handle matters among yourselves without having to outsource to this unbelieving world. Surely you can operate within the system that I have set up for you uh, without taking matters into your own hands. Handle things in-house. Now I want to read from verse 4. I'll just go 4 to, to 8. It says, So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually then, it is already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. And so once again, we, um, we've already been given a, a set of operational rules, so to speak, for how we were to function within a church. Um, we see in, in verse 8 that there is actually sin involved here. Um, it seems that he kind of shifts his focus from verse 7 to verse 8. So let me read that for you once again. It says, actually then it's already defeat for you, that is the person who is seeking to take the other to court, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Rather than trying to, to right this wrong that's been done to you, rather than trying to, to get yours, why not just let it go? And then it seems as if he, he shifts his focus a little bit. He says, on the contrary, in verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. So he's talking to, to one congregation, it seems. He's talking over here. Hey, you guys, you don't need to, to worry about what they're doing. Just, just let it go. You guys, you guys are wronging. You're defrauding, right? Right? <laughs> um, and, and that's not okay. And of course, he could be talking to the same people in the same crowd, but it Seems as if there's a, a shift there a little bit. On the contrary. And in the last couple of chapters, we have um, referred back to Matthew 18. Um, in the last chapter, rather. And, and we're going to do the same in this chapter because I think it's applicable here as well. So let's look back at, at Matthew 18. And we will see um, the, the outline that we have for how we're to handle situations and, and issues and disagreements within the church. So Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. 
if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Again, we've talked about this simple enough, right? You've got a problem with somebody, you go to that person, you hash it out. You um, come to an agreement yourselves. But if he does not listen to you, verse 16, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the world or to the unbeliever in the law court to, to judge Judy, to judge Joe Brown. No, he says you tell it to the church, right? It's pretty clear, pretty plain. You tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Again, pretty plain, pretty simple. We have instructions for how to handle disagreements and differences within the church. When somebody is wronged, um, or even when they feel like they're wrong, they are to approach that person privately, take two or three with them, and then take it before the church. The body of believers that God has placed in that person's life, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, being led and directed by the Word of God, and you handle it there. Now, that's usually where this, uh, the quote for this passage is, is left off. I want to read one more verse, the very next verse, verse 18, where it says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, that's kind of a, a confusing verse. Even for, for theologians, there is a lot of discussion, a lot that's involved in that verse. But really, I think it boils down to the church acting as a representative of God on earth and declaring what he has declared in his word. He has given the church the authority to speak on his behalf and to determine what he has said in his word and to apply that to the church. Whatever is bound on earth may be bound in heaven. I've got a quote here from Jonathan Lehman, and he says, the work of wielding the keys, again, that's akin to um, making a judgment on behalf of, of God to declare um, something to have been bound or loosed. The work of wielding the keys is a judicial activity, like the work of a judge in a courtroom. A judge does not make the law, he interprets it. Then, based on that interpretation, a judge does not make a person actually innocent or guilty, but when he pounds the gavel and declares guilty or not guilty, the whole legal system will swing in action and treat that person as such. A judge on the bench and a law professor in the classroom might use the exact same words when interpreting a law or offering their judgment of a case. But a judge's judgment binds. The words guilty or I pronounce you man and wife are effectual because they are backed up by the authority of a government they enact something. So in the same sense, the church, we're not the ones who are making the law. We are just applying the law. Or a, a local church is to take and to apply the law um, of God, that God has written out, that God has determined and declared. And we are to try to determine what it is that God has said to us. Now there is certainly a, a place for government in, in our life. Government is instituted by God. Romans 13.2 says that all authority has been instituted by God and that those who exist are, are instituted by him. There is no authority except from God. And so there's a place for the government and a place for the church. They act in two different ways. And we have to remember that while it's true that Caesar 
has been granted authority to rule. He's been given this authority. It's been given to him by God. And just like the church, he is subject to the headship and the authority of King Jesus. And so the church operates in in one realm. The government operates in another realm. And here in 1 Corinthians 6, what we're looking at, what we're dealing with is interpersonal disagreements between believers. We're not dealing with legal criminal activity. We're not dealing with rape or uh, child abuse or embezzlement or a tax evasion. God has placed a, a governmental structure over us to handle those types of situations. And even in those types of situations, there's going to be a, a spiritual aspect to that that needs to be addressed by the church. The church needs to come alongside, even in, in criminal situations, and address a spiritual aspect that the government is not going to be able to do. We have to recognize that there's a difference between a sin and a crime. And all crimes include sin, but not all sin is criminal. And the church is responsible for addressing the, the spiritual aspect, the sinfulness of it. And again, here we're dealing with interpersonal disagreements rather than criminal activity. And uh, we're given instructions on how that is to be handled. It's to be handled in-house without involving the, the unbelieving world. Now, look with me back in uh, verse 5 where he says, I say this to your shame. Now, maybe you remember from a few weeks back, back in chapter 4, verse 14, Paul's writing to these same believers, and he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now he's saying, oh, I'm writing these things to shame you, all right. Again, <laughs> do you not understand? Dare you guys go to court against one another? I write this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? And here we see another jab from Paul. He's, he's fighting now um, because these Corinthian believers, again, they had a high estimation of, of wisdom. They highly esteemed it, and they wanted to be known and understood as being wise. Uh, we see this all throughout the, the first few chapters. I want to go back to chapter 1, verse 22, which says, For indeed... Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. This church at Corinth had been highly influenced by the Greek culture. They sought after wisdom. And again, that's kind of where this division uh, arose from. They said, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. This guy's wise. This guy speaks eloquently. I want to align myself with him. They sought after wisdom. Um, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you in superiority of speech or of wisdom. Again, he wanted to point out, you guys have highly esteemed wisdom, what it means to, to be able to articulate something, to be able to stand up and um, to say something eloquently. That's not how I came to you. And then down in verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. Again, pointing out the fact that you guys esteem wisdom. That's not where it's at. All throughout uh, chapter 3, he's talking about how they couldn't even be fed this meat. Remember? They were infants in Christ. They needed to be just bottle fed this milk because they were unable to chew on the heavy theology of the meat that he wanted to give to them. Again, uh, a slight backhand 
putting them in their place, saying, you guys aren't as wise as you think you are. You're, you're just a bunch of babes. You're a bunch of infants. And then in verse 18 of chapter 3, he said, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. And so Paul here, back in our text in chapter 6, verse 5 says, I say these things to your shame. There's not one man among you who's wise enough to, to step up and to judge. Are you kidding me? You guys are so puffed up and so arrogant. You guys speak so proudly of your wisdom, and yet you're outsourcing to the unbelievers because you're unable to handle it yourselves. There's not one person among you who can step up and, and do what needs to be done. Instead, you're sending them out to the, the unjustified unbelievers. Now, Again, not to say that unbelievers aren't able to judge justly, to make a just declaration. They, they are at times, but they're operating under a different worldview entirely. And even, even so, not all the time are they making the right judgments or even handling cases that they should be. I'm sure you guys remember the, the lady who sued McDonald's because she burned herself on McDonald's coffee and some judge in his own wisdom, said, well, yeah, I'll give you a, a million-dollar settlement or whatever the amount happened to be. Um, that's the wisdom of the world, right? I just saw yesterday that um, who's it? Subway is being sued because their tuna fish sandwiches don't have real tuna in them. Um, that's, that's weird, right? Um, if, <laughs> if you don't like that, then maybe don't eat there. Um, or if you don't like even the thought that that might not be tuna fish. I would say don't eat there, but to take somebody to court, that's, that's foolish. Again, I think Paul would say just handle it in-house. If you have a problem with Subway, maybe don't come to us because <laughs> that's foolish and weird and I don't want to deal with that. Um, go to Subway, right, <laughs> and figure it out with Subway. Um, handle things in-house rather than outsourcing to unbelievers. And while chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians is highly practical. It's highly applicable to, to our time and um, really gives us everyday type of situations to think on and chew on. It gives us great advice from, from God on high. It still leaves us with, with some questions, leaves us with some doubts, and it um, uh, brings up more questions. Remember that Paul is dealing with a local church here in Corinth, and he's saying, you guys handle things in-house. If you have one believer who has a problem with another believer, you guys settle it. Well, things get complicated a little bit. We don't have direct revelation from God on how to handle it when you have one believer in one congregation, another believer in a different congregation. Is it the same type of situation? What about when you have a group of believers who wants to go to law against another group of believers? What if you get food poisoning from Chick-fil-A? Are you allowed to take Chick-fil-A to to court and settle things. Um, what about with unbelievers? If you have an issue with an unbeliever, are we still are we forbidden to take them to court, or how do we handle that? Well, I'm not going to answer all those questions for you today. So, rather than doing that, um, I just want to focus on the fact that um, yeah, we we want absolute clarity. I think sometimes, and we want everything to be black and white. We want somebody to tell just just tell me what to do in this situation. We're not always given that. We are told and directed to, uh, to seek wisdom. And really, I want to 
want to challenge us with this, that it shouldn't be our desire or our attempt as believers to try to get away with as much as possible. That we shouldn't be trying to tiptoe that line of what am I allowed to do? What can I get away with? Um, we'll get into in just a couple chapters, verses 8 or chapters 8 and 9, the Paul's use of liberty and how he tells us, be careful in your use of liberty. Yes, we have liberty in Christ, but to what extent? And again, it seems like we're always trying to, to toe the line on the side of unrighteousness. How much can I drink before I actually get drunk? Um, two beers, is that okay? Is it 0.08? No, it changed to 0.05 last year, a couple years ago, right? So is that okay? Um, what about my media consumption? What am I allowed to watch without crossing that line into sin? Um, what about how much am I able to, to get away with giving to, to the church? Um, is it okay if I give 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 5%, 10%? Where's the line? And we often have a desire to, to flirt with that line of what can I get away with? What are the, the minimal requirements, so to speak? Whereas I want to encourage us, maybe if we're going to, to err on the side, let's err on the side of, of righteousness, rather than saying, um, how much can I, can I drink to get drunk? You don't want to go clear to the other side of legalism, right? Um, but in Ephesians chapter 5, where we're told not to be drunk, the purpose of that chapter, the whole main point that Paul's trying to get at in Ephesians is to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So let's get as far away from that as possible. Let's be controlled by the Holy Spirit. First uh, Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, be holy even as I am holy. That's what, what God says. So not trying to see how much can I get away with. Um, PG-13, is that too much? Rated R, where, where's the line? Again, we're kind of, we have a tendency to want black and white. What is okay, what's not okay? Rather than, erring on the side of, of righteousness. Speaking to, to giving, um, Paul addresses that in the, the next letter that he writes in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. He says that you should give with a, a cheerful heart. Whatever you give, give it cheerfully, not begrudgingly. Um, actually, take a, take a page out of the Macedonians book, who gave beyond their ability. That's how we're to give. So rather than trying to see what is it that we can get away with, what is it that we have to do as believers, Let's try to see how we can um, be more devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another, seeking to, to outdo one another in love and good works so that we can consider others as, as more important than ourselves. I think that that's the side that we should try to err on. And we're not always going to have all the answers, but if we are seeking his righteousness, um, it's going to be hard for us to go wrong, isn't it? Second reason that that Paul tells us. So the first reason that he says believers shouldn't be going to the law, shouldn't be going to court against other believers is because it goes against God's design. God has told us what we are to do, how we are to handle it in Matthew 18. You are to take it before the church. That's his design. Second reason is that it hurts the church. It hurts the body of Christ when we are divided against one another. Again, first three, four chapters, that was Paul's focus in talking to this church. They had factions among themselves. They were dividing among themselves. That was not his desire for his people, for his bride. He wanted them to be united. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body, and they were being divided amongst themselves. And I want to read for us one verse out of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. He says, Now I exhort you, 
brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete and in the same mind and in the same judgment. How contrary to that desire of Paul is going to law against one another. That's absolutely divisive. That's absolutely against what Paul has said he desires for the church. What Christ himself desires for his church is that they would be unified. And Paul isn't suggesting that they just sweep it under the rug and that they act like nothing happened. Even though he does say down in verse 7, wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be defrauded? So maybe it will come to that, that you let a matter go and you release it. But he doesn't say just let it go from the beginning and act as if it didn't happen. He said, handle it, but handle it in a godly way. Handle it in the biblical way that I have laid out for you, or that Christ rather himself laid out for you in Matthew 18. So deal with it, but deal with it according to God. Now, take out your your physical Bibles once again, because this isn't going to be up on the screen. And jump forward with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And let's look a little bit at um, how Paul teaches unity in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 12 of chapter 12, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. We are one body. Verse 14, For the body is not one member, but many. Um, Jumping down to verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. And that's the same in the Corinthian church. That's the same in this local church. We have many members, but one body. Now picking up in verse 24, he says, But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Paul was seeking unity in this local church, in this local body. He wanted them to be united rather than divided. And then, of course, in the next chapter, the the great love chapter, where he's explaining, well, what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Down towards the end of that list, in verse 7 of 13, he says that love bears all things. Love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. And this church at Corinth clearly had a problem of unity. This church in Corinth clearly had a problem loving one another as described here in 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus himself focused on on this aspect. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5. And he was preaching this all throughout. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers. Wow. Taking each other to court surely isn't indicative of a peacemaker, is it? Um, Remember he said that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. To consider one another as more important than yourselves, Philippians 2. And he says in Matthew 5, 39 and 40, Uh, Listen to this. He says, But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anybody wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Take them to court. 
Don't put up a fight. Let them have your coat. Wouldn't you rather be defrauded? Wouldn't you rather let the other person maybe get away with something now, knowing that God is in control, knowing that God is in charge, rather than submitting yourself to unbelievers, rather than putting at um, putting the body to, to shame and, and disuniting the body of Christ, which he desires to be united. Not only does this bring disunity to the body, but it also gives the church a bad testimony in the community. And that's important. Jesus says, again, in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you, that you love one another. And he says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you have love one for another. That is how we are to, to be witnesses to the world. That is to be our testimony, that we are to love one another. And that's how we, they will know that we are in Christ, that we are redeemed, that we are his. We are always representing Jesus, whether we like it or not. We are wearing his name. If we call ourselves Christians, then the world will look at us and they will see us as his representatives. They will see Christ through us. And we don't want to shame his name by doing something we ought not to be doing. We don't want to blaspheme the name of God, to take his name in vain by claiming to be his and then doing something that he wouldn't condone, that he would not approve of. We are always his ambassadors. We need to live as such. And then lastly, Paul says in Romans 12, verses 17 through 19, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, not just believers, but in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Do we not trust God to take care of these matters? If we've been wronged, if we've been defrauded, let's handle it our, ourselves. That's what he's telling the Corinthian church to do. That's what we should do rather than seeking outside help from unbelievers who deny God's existence, who deny God's word, who deny God's truth. Let's rely on God and allow him to take vengeance. Vengeance is his and he will repay. He's going to make all things right. And so maybe, like me, when you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this issue comes to mind. Somebody says 1 Corinthians 6, and that's what I think of. Oh, lawsuits among believers. Or maybe looking into what we'll look at next week, um, how Paul said, well, once were some of you. That's, that's what I think of when I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But what Paul is really getting at, the main point that he wants to get across is the point of unity that unity should be preserved at, at all costs. Unity is a pretty popular word in, in recent days and weeks around, around our country, isn't it? That people are wanting unity. Um, we are a, a divided nation. I think it's, it's pretty clear. You know, left versus uh, Republican versus Democrat, liberal versus conservative, black versus white, rich versus poor, the the oppressed versus the oppressor, masked versus unmasked, um, pro-vaxxers versus anti-vaxxers. We are a disunited country, and people can understand that. People can look at that, and they can, they can realize that. But they can have 
no true unity. There's nothing that has been suggested that we unite around. And even if there were something that was suggested that we unite around, it's, it's temporal. We're unable to do it because we are a bunch of fallen, sinful, selfish human beings. And we cannot have true unity without having the gospel, without having an experience of that selflessness that we see only in Christ, that we see displayed on the cross, where once again, he took our sin and he placed it upon himself. What a display of selflessness. What a display of, of grace and love when it's not deserved. We cannot have true unity unless we are in Christ, unless we have been bought by that blood that was shed on the cross on our behalf, unless we look to Christ and the cross and his resurrection. There can be no true unity. And yet, the unbelieving world all around us realizes the need for that unity. And they're preaching unity, 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 when they can have no unity. If that's the goal of the unbelievers, how much more ought it to be the goal of his church? that we would seek unity amongst ourselves, amongst other people who call themselves Christians, amongst other believers. Let us be unified in Christ. I want to close by reading Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, also you should forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. God, I pray that you would help us to do this, that we would be united in you by your blood, by the sacrifice of your Son, that we would be thankful for, for what it is that you've done for us, that we would be a light to, to the world. They would see our love for each other, and they would be drawn to you. God, help us to truly be united, that we wouldn't have these types of disagreements that we wouldn't have these types of issues. And if we do, that we would handle them in a biblical way, in a way that honors you, rather than appealing to the unrighteous, that we would appeal to the holy, perfect God of the universe and the word which he has revealed and preserved for us. God, we thank you once again for who you are. Help us to be more like you. Amen.